You can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 23 this morning. And if you want to use a Pew Bible, that's uh, page 797, 797 in the Pew Bible. John Piper has, has said this and written this many, many times. He says, books don't change people, paragraphs do. I was, called, uh, I was uh, contractually obligated to give that John Piper quotation here at the beginning. Uh, Books don't change people, paragraphs do. So if you're a reader, and I'm a reader, you know that it's true. So I can, I've read through many books sitting on my shelf, and if I go to a book, I'm always going to a particular paragraph in that book. Because it's paragraphs that, that change us, that grip us, that get a hold of our imagination, that we find ourselves returning to or thinking of over and over again, over months and sometimes years. One such paragraph for me is, is, is a, from a book that I read back in 2007, and I actually, I think I quoted this a year ago when I, when I preached on Ephesians 1, and this is what this particular series, two-part series, is, is coming out of. This is Sinclair Ferguson in his book called Children of the Living God, and here's what he, here's what he says. Although the parable of the prodigal son is probably the best known and loved of all Christ's parables, the lesson it teaches us as Christians is often overlooked. Jesus was underlining the fact that despite assumptions to the contrary, the reality of the love of God for us is often the last thing in the world to dawn upon us. As we fix our eyes upon ourselves, our past failures, our present guilt, it seems impossible to us that the Father could love us. Many Christians go through much of their life with the prodigal's suspicion. Their concentration is upon their sin, their failure, all their thoughts, are introspective. Now we can hear that and we can say, of course, the love of the Father is going to be the last thing to dawn upon an unbeliever. Because, number one, they don't care about the love of the Father. Even if they grow up in a church setting and they've not yet been regenerated, they can hear the love of the Father and go, yeah, I mean, that's, that's nice, but it's never really dawned on them in the way that it should. But when the Spirit awakens this individual to their need, their great need, and then brings the love of the Father to bear upon them, and for the first time in their lives, that the love of the Father for them dawns upon them, that's what we call regeneration. So we, we get that. We get that. What we sometimes do not get, and, and, and as a result, we can labor under this prodigal suspicion that the Father really doesn't love me or I'm not confident of His love. Just look at my circumstances. Look what I'm going through. Look at this death that our family suffered 
or this hardship, this loss of job, or this wayward child. We don't feel, we're not confident in the love of the Father for us. We often share the prodigal suspicion. If you were to ask me, so let's say that's the case, that there are, there are times and seasons of times where we as believers are not confident in the Father's love for us, how would you address that? How should we address the prodigal suspicion? And I would argue that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is actually tailor-made to address that very problem. That if we want to dispel this suspicion that the Father actually does love us as believers, as a church, you cannot get better than Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So what we're going to do is address the prodigal suspicion this morning and next week. And Ephesians 6.23 is going to be base camp for Are two Sundays. So let me read the text. I'm going to read verse 24 as well, because this is part of a benediction. Verse 23 says, Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second half, grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. So here's the question. Why does Paul end this epistle with this particular benediction? Why this epistle with that benediction? Now, it's not unusual for Paul to end with a benediction or a closing sentence that actually corresponds to the layout of the book. But there is no benediction that does it like this one does. So what Paul is doing in this particular benediction is he's actually laying it over the entirety of the epistle. So he's presented this argument and now he's pronouncing the blessing of God upon the people based upon what he's just written. Why a benediction? So a benediction is you can go all the way back to when God, number six, talks to Moses and says, I want, to, I want you to give these words to Aaron to pronounce over the people of Israel. May the Lord bless thee. We have the Aaronic benediction. And then after he gives the benediction that Moses is to give to Aaron, that Aaron then is to speak over the people of Israel. God says this, verse 27, so shall they Put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So a a blessing, a benediction is not just us wishing for God to do something. God gives us these benedictions, and Paul is giving us this benediction because God's intention in the speaking of the benediction over the people is actually to fulfill it. So we're getting to the end of Ephesians, and Paul is making it clear that this benediction, 
peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and from Jesus Christ our Lord. And grace to all those who love our Lord with love incorruptible. That is to be performed upon us by God himself. So why this particular benediction? Verse 23 corresponds to chapters 1 to 3. And verse 24, I would argue, corresponds to chapters 4 to 6 in Ephesians. So verse 23, peace and love from, so both peace and love here are to come to us from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians. Verse 24, love for Christ, grace to those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. That's actually a response to receiving peace and love from the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. How will you not love the one who has loved you like this? And that creates, that is created the love of of the Father and the love of Christ for us, and then it's expressed in how we live. Chapters 4 to 6. So let me quickly show you with with this what, what Paul's doing with the words peace and love as it relates to the opening of the first three chapters of Ephesians. Peace. Peace. Ephesians 1, 2 begins. Grace to you, common beginning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the obvious link from the end of the letter to the very beginning of the letter. And then we, we get into verse 3 and following, and we see our triune God gets to work. So pronounce grace and peace, and now the triune God actually gets to work. So in verses 1 to 6, you have the Father planning this grace and peace to us before the foundation of the world. And then in verses 7 to 12, you have the Son performing it, actually bringing that grace and peace to bear within human history. And then you have the Spirit applying this in verses 13 and 14. Then you get to chapter 2, and this is where Paul begins to get very clear and obvious about peace. Verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called to uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there's Christ performing what is essential and necessary to bring us near. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might that Jesus might create in himself one new humanity in the place of two, Jew and Gentile, so making 
peace. Here he is. Once again, Jesus performs it in human history and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. There's his performance, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So Paul makes peace really obvious. How it was performed, brought about, made by Jesus himself. So much so that Paul says he himself is our peace. And then you get to chapter 4 and you have these words. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager, eager. We see the peace that Jesus has given to us, that he has accomplished, that he has performed. And now Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And I would argue that Jesus himself is the bond. And then we get into chapters 4 to 6. So, why does Paul say in Ephesians 6, 23, peace to the brothers? Because I've seen uh, commentaries will take that and they'll put in parentheses and sisters. Peace to the brothers, and then they'll put in parentheses and sisters, we don't want to forget them, which, which is missing the point of what Paul's doing in Ephesians. If he, meant for, if he meant to include the words and sisters, guess what? He would have. So what is Paul doing in Ephesians? Ephesians 1.5 says that the Father predestined us for adoption as sons to himself. For adoption as what? As sons. That includes male and female. And do you know why females are included in sons? It's because they have inherited what the son has inherited. This means that they are co-heirs with Christ in Christ. So when he says at the end, peace be to the brothers, he's highlighting our common unity as co-heirs of Christ. There's no need to say, and sisters, because he's already argued that all of you have been raised with Christ. All of you, both male and female, have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's peace. What about love? And love with faith. Not just love, and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians 3, the end of Ephesians 3, you have the second prayer of Paul in Ephesians. He, he makes it explicit that Christ loves us. So he, he wants us, he prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So it's made explicit that Christ loves us and we need as Christians to to know and enjoy and to grow in our experience of the love of Christ for us. So that's explicit, but what Paul does not do is make explicit the Father's love for us. 
Instead, what Paul does in Ephesians is describe the Father's love for us. So I can either tell you I love you, or I can actually describe how I'm going to love you. So Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. How generous with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as, he's describing it, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to his good pleasure. So Paul is not telling us explicitly that the Father loves us, but he's describing what is the love of the Father for us. And this is all to the praise of his his glorious grace. So what's this love, love with faith? Love with faith. So if, if you got invited over, Kevin Delp invited you over for a game night. You're going to go over and play whatever games he has. He has a few. And um, you're thinking, oh, I hope so-and-so is there. Because when they come, they bring the fun. They bring the excitement. They bring the laughter. So you're already thinking, I can't wait to go. But man, I'm really hoping that this person is there. Because when they come, they bring with them They bring with them fun and laughter. And then you get there and you realize they're not there. And there's disappointment. Because that person brought with him laughter. That's what Paul means by love with faith. Here's the way faith in Christ is to work. When you believe in Christ and as you're trusting Christ in the daily proclamation, meditation upon the gospel, what is to come with that faith is the assurance of the Father's love for us, is the assurance of Christ's love for us. Now, what I'm going to do from here, that was the introduction. That was the introduction. Um, What I'm going to do from here on out is uh, not what we typically do here at Heritage. So typically we're working through a book and we're going unit by unit, paragraph by paragraph. And uh, I'm going to do more of a thematic exposition of Ephesians. So yes, we're looking at text. Everything I say, I preach is coming out of the text. But we're looking at more of a thematic exposition of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I was uh, recently asked to write a book, and uh, I told Trent about this book I'm writing. And the title of the book is um, Battling the Prodigal Suspicion, Resting in the Assurance of the Father's Love. And so Trent said, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. So that's what this is. And I'm excited for the opportunity. So if, if you say, I wish he would have developed that more. You know what I'm going to tell you? Get the book. Get the book. So there's my, there's my one and only sales pitch this morning. It, hope, Lord willing, it'll be out in a year. So two headings this morning. 
answering the question, why so suspicious? Why are we so suspicious? First heading is our battle. And that corresponds to the, the main title of the series, Battling the Prodigal Suspicion. And then our second heading is our assurance. And that corresponds with the subheading, resting in the assurance of the Father's love. So let's look at the battle. We'll move through this quickly. Why do I, why do I use the word battle? Now, if, if you're familiar with the way Ephesians is laid out, you already know the answer to that question. And that is because of Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Which is that the armor of God text, where it's where we go when we want to talk about spiritual warfare. We go to Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. So it's, it's describing a, a very unique battle. And if you've been at Heritage for longer than a year, uh, you've, you've likely heard Abe's excellent series on Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, 20. And that was a year ago, I think this month, June. So if you want to revisit that, uh, an excellent series that Abe did for us a year ago. There, there are concentric circles of understanding. When you're looking at a biblical text, there are concentric circles of understanding. So you have the, the text itself, the textual unit and its meaning within there, how the clauses and phrases all fit together, how they relate to one another. So you have that understanding, and then you, you pull back out, and you can have how does it fit within the book itself, and then you pull back out, and you, how does that fit within the New Testament itself, and then you can pull back even further, and how does that fit within all of Scripture. And so what A beautifully did was show you how Paul's language of the armor of God is actually drawn from, largely from, the book of Isaiah. So Abe's looking at the text itself, and then he's pulling way out, and he's saying, okay, how does this armor that we find in Isaiah actually inform what Paul's doing here in the text? That is a necessary way to look at Ephesians 6. That's not what I'm doing. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at Ephesians 6 and going, why did Paul put Ephesians 6 in Ephesians and not Romans? Why did he put it in Ephesians and not Philippians? Why did he put it in Colossians? You get the point. I want to know what it's actually doing in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. How does it relate? Is there a connection between what he has here at the end of chapter 6 and what he's doing in the beginning of, Paul, of his letter to the Ephesians? That's my particular concern. So the question is, is how does Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 work in this book? So let me just show you some connections here from Ephesians 6 with the opening sections of, of Ephesians. So you have these power words. So look at Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, you have three power words here. Finally, be, here's the first one, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Three power words. Paul piles them up. What's, what's interesting and significant is that Paul uses those same three power words earlier in the epistle. Chapter 1, verse 19. This is Paul's first prayer 
in the letter. He prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power that corresponds to the word strong in 610. Be strong that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, toward us who are believing according to the working of his great, and that corresponds to might in Ephesians 6.10, his great might, which corresponds to strength in Ephesians 6.10. So he prays that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his, the Father's power toward us who believe according to the great might that he used to raise Jesus from the dead and to seat him in the heavenly places far above all rule and power. So Ephesus was dominated by mystery religions of power and magic. So these, these Gentile believers now were terrified of the gods being against them. A God could be against, uh, for you one minute and against you the next minute. So their whole lives were trying to maneuver whether the God is for or against and to get the gods to be for us and not against us. And there was this, all, they always had fear that the gods would turn against them. And so what Paul says here is that you need to be strong in the power of his might And then he locates the power of his might in what the Father did toward us when he raised Jesus from from the dead. That right there says, the Father will never be against you. He is for you both in this age and in the age to come. Other words, rulers and authorities. Look at verse 12 of chapter 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, here it is, the rulers, against the authorities. Then you go back to the opening prayer of Ephesians 1, you have the same thing, that we might, verse 20, 21, that we might know that power that we just talked about, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, there's the word, rulers, far above all rule and authority. And power and dominion, and above every name that is a name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God's power toward you is that same power that raised Christ from the dead, seated him in the heavenly places, above all rule and authority, about above all these gods that you fear. What's the first piece of armor that Paul gives us, verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Remember, my concern is, my concern is not how this fits within the larger context of Scripture. My concern, when I'm looking at a word like truth, is how does it fit, how does it work within Ephesians itself? Ephesians 1.13, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, there it is, Then he explains what he means by truth. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So in Ephesians, the word truth here is very clearly the gospel of your salvation. And you get to chapter 4, 
Verses 20 and 21, you must no longer walk. Previous verses, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That is not the way you learned Christ. So now he's talking about their experience after having first believed. And he says, don't, don't walk like Gentiles any longer because you have not learned Christ after your conversion. You've not learned Christ like that. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. Since truth is in Jesus. Since truth is in Jesus. So we take the way Paul uses truth and where are we to fill in our understanding of truth here from Ephesians 6.14, the belt which is truth. It's the truth of the good news of your salvation. It's the truth after you first believed that you were taught in Christ. The truth as it is found in, in Jesus. And then quickly, two other pieces of armor here. Verses 15 and 16 of chapter 6. Shoes as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So you can't, we've already talked about peace here. So he's already established early on that Jesus himself is our peace. And he, he has given us both Jew and Gentile access to the father himself. This is the gospel of, of peace. And if you are to be ready and to stand in the face of opposition against the cosmic powers and to advance, what you need is to be settled in your mind, to be confident in your mind that the Father is not nor ever against you. He is always Father, He is always for you, even when He disciplines us with fatherly discipline. And then Paul says in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield, which is faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And faith there, I'm going to have chapter 6, verse 23, help me here, love with faith, love with faith from God our Father. So so the shield of faith is to come with the assurance of the Father's love. That's the way Ephesians is structured. The shield of faith is the assurance of the Father's love. That is what extinguishes all the flaming darts of the evil one. So from whom do we need this protection? Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 16, we have the flaming darts of the evil one. What is, what is the devil trying to take out? We might say, well, he's trying to take out us. All right, yes. But what is he aiming at to take us out? He's very intelligent, so he knows specifically what to aim at in order to take us out. What, what in us is the devil trying to take out? That's the question. 
What in you is the devil trying to take out that you need the armor of God for? I think Paul gives the answer in chapter 1. So you have that opening paragraph divided into three sections. Each section is marked by the closing words, verse 6, to the praise of his, the Father's, glorious grace. So here's what the Father has planned, and this is all to the praise of the Father's glorious grace. Verse 12, you, you have what the Son performed, and this was to the praise of the Father's glory. Then the Spirit applies, verse 14, this is to the praise of his glory. So God's objective in all that he does, in all, he, in all that the Father plans, in all that the Son performs, in all that the Spirit applies, is to the praise of the Father's glorious grace. How can the Father love me like that? That's, that's the point. How can the Father, how can the Son, how can the Spirit love us like that? So that's our battle. That's what Satan's going after. He knows if God's ultimate end is everything that he's done to be to the praise of his glorious grace to those he's redeemed, what do you think Satan's going to go after? He doesn't want on your lips or in your heart praise to the Father's glorious grace. So he's going to go after that. He wants your assurance. So let's look at our our assurance now. Two questions. Why do we need assurance? Even, Even as believers... You will not run to the Father if you think he's against you. You will not run to the Father if you do not have the assurance of his love. If you, if if ever you find yourself not immediately running to the Father after a failure or a sin, if ever you find yourself not running to the Father, I can tell you, that what you do not feel assured of is the Father's love. If you had a sense of the Father's love for you after you have sinned, you know what you will do? You will not run from the Father. You will not hide from the Father. You will not sidestep the Father. You will actually run to the Father. Only the assurance of the Father's love is actually what brings us to To the Father. And the devil knows that if he can get you to doubt the Father's disposition, favorable disposition toward you, he's got you. The devil is quite content for us to see God as judge, so long as we do not see him as Father. Why do you think he he accuses us before the Father with our sins? Because he wants us to think only of the Father as what? As judge. Not as Father. Richard Sibbs, Puritan pastor, born in 1577, died in 1635. The book he's most well known for is The Bruised Reed. Beautiful, beautiful book, pastoral book. He says this in one of his other 
books present to the eye of our souls God in Christ in the relations he has taken upon him to be a father in Christ. Let us make that benefit of, his be- of this beauty that is presented to us in the gospel foremost, especially when it is unfolded in the ministry, because Satan hath a special policy to present God in Christ otherwise to us. Especially in the time of temptation, he presents God to us as judge, sitting upon his throne and as God as a consuming fire. It is true, he is so outside of Christ, but in Christ he hath taken the relation of a father and looketh on us sweetly in relations as sons. Christ must be considered in the sweet relation of a Savior, and the Holy Spirit in the sweet relation of a Comforter, and the Word is all written for our comfort if we believe. Let us present these things beautifully to the soul, and this will strengthen faith and increase affection that Satan might not rob us of our comfort. Let us not entertain hard conceits or thoughts of God in Christ but labor to present them sweetly to our meditations. This is the wisdom of a Christian to have sights of faith, that is, to present several things that faith may work to strengthen itself. As for faith, to have a sight of God in Christ, a gracious Father. Satan does not want that. The gospel tells us that is actually the case. And that's what Paul is arguing for here in Ephesians. So how do we get it? How do we get it? Scripture gives two ways to get assurance. One is to examine yourself. And if you're like me, very melancholy, you don't want to do that very long. The main way Scripture gives us for assurance is not to examine ourselves so much as to look outside ourselves. And this is what Paul does in Ephesians. He points us over and over and over again to that which is outside of us. God the Father planning, God the Son performing, God the Spirit applying. Objectively, objectively, God does everything he does to the great end of praise to his glorious grace. Objectively, that's where all of history is going. And Satan's okay if you say, yes, the end of all history, all of human history is going this direction, that one day everything in us will be praise to the Father's glorious grace. Satan is okay. The devil is okay. The cosmic powers are okay. If you are able to say, yes, that is where history is going to that great end. But God has something subjectively for us. Paul does not begin Ephesians 1 by giving his thesis statement, God does everything that he does 
to the praise of his glorious grace and then begin to list it out. How does Paul do it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, the Father, in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. What does Paul do? He's he's first praising himself and he's taking us along with him by rehearsing what it is the Father has done before human history, what the Son has done in human history, and what the Spirit is doing in applying that which the Father planned, that which the Son performed, applying that to our lives. Paul means for us to experience, wow, how can the Father love me like that? Why would he love me like that? There's a singer-songwriter, Laura Story. I've gone to a couple concert, concerts of her over the years. Um, written some lot, wrote a lot of great songs. Uh, Probably the most well-known is Indescribable. She wrote a song called The Prodigal Song. I listened to it again this morning. Um, I was at a concert, and her her husband had a brain tumor. And uh, went through lengthy surgery. And she was telling how when she went to see him in recovery, after he was awake, he goes in there, she goes in there, and he goes, Laura, story. You came to see me? See, he, he, he had lost all memory of her and his marriage of her. He only knew her as the singer-songwriter. So evidently, he used to go to her concerts way back. And here he is, recovering from surgery, and he's like, Laura Story, you came to see me? This is the effect. This is the effect that Paul means for the letter of the Ephesians to have upon us as he rehearses the love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Spirit, is that as it rests upon us, as it lands upon us, love with faith. We find our hearts going, you love me? You chose me? in Christ before the foundation of the world, that I might be holy and blameless before you? You predestined me for adoption as sons to yourself? You did that for me? Devil don't like that. Devil don't like that. There's a, there's a corporate dynamic to Ephesians. It's written to the church. So this corporate dynamic, preaching, the interrelationships that we have as a church, our assurance comes through the preaching, our assurance comes through 
the loving encouragement that we share with one another. Uh, back in 2018, I'm preaching Impact, and I hadn't slept well for nights. And so this particular Sunday, I was up at 12.28, I remember it, a.m., didn't go to sleep, couldn't go back to sleep, and then I, here I am standing up in the cave preaching at 6 p.m., and I had several nights of, of no sleep like that. And I'm up there preaching in the Gospel of John, and um, got about halfway through, and my brain just shut off. It was like a switch just went, Choo. I'm looking down at my notes, and I can't make sense of anything that I've written. I'm just looking at hieroglyphic markings on my, on my, on my notes, what it looked like. I just couldn't make any sense of it. And I'm, so I'm, I'm trying to think of thoughts to say, thoughts to come out of my mouth and no thoughts were coming in my brain other than you're not coming up with anything. And I asked my wife, how long, how long was that? And she said, it, it felt like forever, but <laughs> it, it was probably 20, 30 seconds. So 30 seconds of me, I'm just looking here like this. More and more panic setting in. And then after about 30, <laughs> after about 30 seconds, um, Lord, gracious to me, and I landed the plane quickly. And I prayed, worship team came up, I went down, they're singing, and I sat there in the front row feeling absolutely defeated and dejected, beating myself up, what a failure, what a failure you are, what a failure. And I got to get back up there and do the benediction, man, this is not good, I can't wait, I just want to go home and try to get to sleep. And while I'm standing here having all of these crazy thoughts and calling myself idiot, which is what I tend to do in moments like that, Greg Fox comes down, puts his arm around me, and he says, I love you, brother. And, and I, I, I felt the love of Greg, yes, I felt the love of Greg, but do you know what I really felt? Love of the Father. I remember standing there, Greg's arm around me. He's not here this morning, so I can do this. His arm around me, speaking love to me, encouraging me, comforting me. And what I thought of most coming through him was the love of the Father. Battling the prodigal's suspicion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us all that we need. Thank you that you have not only given us yourself and brought us to yourself, you have given us Christ, you've raised us up with him, and you've given us your spirit. And so we are thankful for the rich grace and love that you have bestowed and continue to bestow upon us and will forever bestow upon us both in this age and in the age to come. So strengthen us in our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.